Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're back in the book of Philippians this morning. We're going to pick up where we we left off after that little foray last Sunday into 2 Timothy chapter 3, looking at the the prevailing culture around us, um, not only around us, but also in the Apostle uh, Paul's time. We're back in Paul's letter to, to the Philippians this morning. When I came to Christ... I uh, celebrated my 25th salvation anniversary uh, when I was away on vacation. And when I came to Christ, uh, I didn't know a lot about the Bible, but there's one thing that, that I knew for certain. That Jesus Christ saved me as a great sinner. And if He would do that for me, He would do that for, for anyone. Um, so I witnessed a lot. I would go, to, uh, go out to the central bus station on my lunch hour and look for people to witness to. Uh, when I would go to the food court at the, at the mall, I, I would look, try to figure out a, a chair uh, close to somebody that I might be able to strike up a conversation. I witnessed to unsaved friends and, and family. I even did some questionable things like knocking on the door of, a, of an exotic dancer's club one time and witnessing to the man who came to the door, uh, a street preached, uh, I went into beer joints. None of that I would recommend to you, uh, but just in my zeal and desire uh, for, for people to come to, to Christ, uh, I did some of those things. And whoever I talked to, I would share my testimony. Uh, I, I would ask them where they stood with God, and if they rejected Christ, then, then I, w- I would leave them some gospel material. And, and one of my, my, my favorite booklets that, that I use today is called Two Ways to Live. I like it because it confronts people with how they're living now rather than immediately focusing on, on the decision that they're going to, to make about where they're going when, whenever they die. I mean, it gets there, but, but it starts by forcing you to consider who is sitting as the Lord of your life right, right now. You can be assured of, of heaven by trusting in Christ alone, and that's, 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 a, that's an active uh, uh, trust that, that you must commit. Um, but there are two ways to live, and the way in which you live will reveal um, whether you've done that or not. Our way, which is rebellion toward God who, who made us and rules over us, and that way you call the shots and you kind of add him if, if he's needed, and then there's God's way. By submitting yourself to Jesus and relying on his death and resurrection to be reconciled to God. Well, the Apostle Paul is going to remind us today that that same choice continues even after we, we come to Christ. There are still two ways to live. God's way or, or our way. We, we either follow the Lord along with many others or we follow after the, the world and and that's a life that Paul will describe to us today as it's a life as, as an enemy of the, of the cross. But those are the only two options. That's why Paul has been giving us these, these serious warnings in chapter 3. In verses 12 through 16, we looked at last time, uh, Paul reminded us that we have not arrived yet, neither is he, so we pursue. We, we pursue Christ-likeness. I mean, that, that's the goal, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And, and we do that by forgetting what, what are the things that are behind and reaching forward what lies ahead, which is the prize, the upward call of God in, in Christ Jesus. 
Ligon Duncan said that Philippians 3, 12 through 16, Paul almost summarizes the Christian life with three mottos. We're not there yet, we're pressing on, and we're reliant upon God's grace. Paul is now going to get specific about, about how, we, how we go about doing that. So verses 17 through 21 that we're going to look at this morning is actually a continuation of, of Paul's thought in verses 12 through 16 about pursuing Christ. And if you go back even before that passage, in verses 8 through 11, Paul talks about our position in Christ is secure. His righteousness has been credited to our account through, through, through faith alone. And, and because we're in Christ, then we must pursue becoming like Christ. And that's what he tells us in verses 12 through 16. And now he's going to get very practical and talk about the practice of that, of that pursuit. That happens with others and not with the world. Verses 17 through 21. The Bible does not describe your decision to follow Christ as the end, but, but the beginning. It's the starting point, not, not the goal. And, and once you come to the Lord, you start walking after the Lord. And, and as you walk, there are three helps that God gives you for, for, for that journey. And that's what He's going to tell us, verses 17 through, through 21. The, the outline uh, for these two verses is very simple, fairly straightforward. Verse 17, there are two commands... Two commands. Uh, Paul says, follow my example. That's the first command. And then he says, and pay close attention to others who walk like me. That's the second command. And then in verses 18 through 21, he gives two reasons to do that. First reason is so you won't become like those who walk as enemies of the cross. Verses 18 and 19. And the second reason is you want to walk as those who are citizens in, in heaven. Because you're going to face the Lord one day. You're going to see Him face to face. Verses 20 through, through 21. There are only two ways to live. Christ's way with others, or our way with, with, with those who are on the, the broad road. Many are on that broad road. Few are on the road following Christ's way. And so God graciously provides these three practical helps, or we'll summarize it this way. Three practical helps in the practice of Christ-likeness. The pursuit of Christ-likeness, the practice of, of Christ-likeness. He gives us uh, models to act like in verse 17. He, he describes a mutiny to avoid, and then he provides a motivation to, to anticipate. Models, mutiny, and motivation. Let's, let's look at the first one here. First help God gives us in the pursuit, uh, the practice of Christ-likeness, are models to, to act like. There's a call here to, to duplicate the Apostle Paul, and there's also a call to follow that pattern in, in others. Look, if you would, at verse 17. He says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that, that you have in us. Now, Paul begins by calling us to join in following his example. The, the Greek is a, is a compound word form found nowhere else. And I don't mean just not, in the, not anywhere else in the New Testament. I mean nowhere else in, in, in Greek literature. So it's likely an invention by the Apostle Paul. It, it, this, this idea of join in following my example, it, it literally says, be fellow imitators of me. Sum mimetes, a co-imitator. Paul says, mimic me, basically. And he, he just links together a couple Greek words to, to describe what, what, what he means. 
Now, Paul had not arrived at perfection yet, but, but as an imperfect sinner, he was striving toward Christ-likeness. That's what he just got done telling us. And that pursuit is what he wants us to imitate. Imitate my pursuit, Paul says. Mimic me in, in this forgetting what is behind and reaching forward. This sincere and focused walk toward the high calling of God in, in Christ Jesus. I, I wonder, is your life worthy of imitation? I mean, if someone would say to you, I am, I, my goal is to mimic your walk. I, I want to I imitate you in, in every way. How would you feel about that? Ugh, I don't know. Now, don't think your life has to be perfect because the Apostle Paul says that he's not perfect. He, he's not completed. He, he, he's still doing these very things that he's commanding us, but it's the pursuit your pursuit that could be worthy of imitation. It's not perfection, it's direction. The direction that you're focused. And, and how hard you're leaning into that direction. Paul was engaged in, in that race. And his effort, he says, is, is worthy of invitation. Uh, uh, imitation. This is not some arrogant desire from, from Paul for, for preeminence. But it's, it's a very natural part of how we learn. He understands that. I mean, we learn as we watch other people, don't we? I mean, and then we do what, as they do. Paul is going to remind us in the next few verses, that cuts both ways. You can also imitate a bad example that if you surround yourself with those kind of people. But here he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And, and he said that, he said that before. Because you and I learn by what we see as well as what we hear. Life lessons, you've probably heard of caught as well as taught. You can listen to a sermon and read your Bible, and you should, but, but the Bible says that's not enough to complete your spiritual growth. You must put what you've learned into practice. And it's seeing those same things lived out in others that helps us complete that process. The passage you all know that warns us about stopping part way is found in the book of James. This is an application of James one twenty two. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who, who delude themselves. Only listening but not practicing is a deception. You believe that's the end of the race. But you're not even running if, if you're hearing only. That's what James says. And so Paul says, hear what I have to say, but then watch me put it into practice. Imitate. Imitate it in my life. I mean, listening only is like a person who, who puts on their running shoes uh, but never leaves the couch and then wonders why they're not getting healthy. I mean, I put my running shoes on every morning. And they never run. I think Jesus said something even more pointed in the Gospel of Luke, echoing the same idea. Can you imagine the Lord asking you this question? Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, why do you call me Lord but do not do what I say? You can admire Jesus, and you can believe in Jesus. You can even be baptized in His name. But if you're not following Him, you're not following Him until you practice what He commands. I fear there are a lot of Christians who have been in church their whole lives that, that fall to this deception. Appreciation of the truth, or for the truth, is not application of the truth. You can appreciate the Bible and never apply it. And one of the tools that God has given us to avoid that error, the error of healing, uh, hearing only, is to provide models that, that show us how to walk with Jesus. And maybe you, you can think about it this way. Which do you remember more? 
a specific sermon you heard on prayer or the godly saint that, that you prayed with every Wednesday night that showed you what praying looks like? Uh, what, was, it, was it there a, a book that you read on suffering that taught you how to do it well or a faithful church member with cancer that showed you how to do it well? And don't misunderstand me. I'm not pitting these two things against each other, like thinking and, and, and doing. Don't fall into the anti-intellectual seminary is cemetery nonsense. I mean, the Bible tells you to love God with all your mind. So you need to learn things, and you need to pursue God w- with your mind. But, but pitting clear thinking and hard study against practical living is rooted in laziness and, and, and pride. I mean, some people are never able to study formally. They become threatened by those, those who do, and they, they tear it down. That's pride. Instead of being humble and trusting in God's providence and the gifts that He's given them. Of course, there's the opposite problem. Those who learn a little something and their, their britches grow even faster than their brains. You've probably met somebody like that. I mean, you don't want to follow a man who's full of more Greek than godliness. That kind of man lacks the practice side. But I'd love to follow a man who's full of Greek and godliness. That's the goal. The Bible never pits knowing uh, against doing. It, it puts them together and it calls it pursuit. And besides, you really don't know something until you're able to put it into practice. But notice, uh, Paul says, while it's good to have a mentor to follow, in fact, he says, mimic me, the power is not in the person, it's in the pattern that both the Apostle Paul and the others that he says to observe... the the pattern that they've learned. Look at verse 17 again. He says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. And here's the second command. Observe. Literally, fix your gaze on those who walk according to the pattern that's both in Paul and in others. Pattern is tupas, where we get uh, the word type, like a type of Christ. It's a pattern. It's, it's something that you see and that you want to imitate. Paul says you can follow my example and observe others also because both of us follow the same pattern. What is that pattern? Well, he, it's Christ. He's already given it to us back in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. He's already described the pattern of the cross. And, and in the very next verse, he, he's going to say, don't set your life as an enemy against that pattern, the pattern of the cross, a, a, a life of disobedience. Make it a life of, of humility that obeys, even to the point of death, full submission to the Father. That's the pattern that the Apostle Paul had. That's the pattern that you should look for in others. That's the pattern that you should should imitate. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he says this observation is not a passing glance, but an intentional watching with with a goal. Now, some of you men get... uh, graciously drugged to the mall or the grocery store or otherwhere, uh, some other place with your wife. And while they're out buying all of the necessities for your home or maybe a few other things for themselves, some of you sit on the bench, right? And what do you do while you're on the bench besides flipping through your phone? Before you had phones, i tell you what everybody did. They, they people watched, right? Watch everybody going by. They would observe them. The Apostle Paul's talking about an even greater observation than than that. This observation is not a passing glance, but it's an intentional watching. Paul says the way they conduct their lives demands careful observation. 
and faithful imitation. I mean, you can hear and know you need to have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then you begin to think, okay, that's what I want because Christ is in me. And the next question is, okay, what does that look like? I want to be humble. I pray every morning, God grant me humility, grace to the humble. I'm a brother thing. What does that look like? How do I put shoe leather to that? Paul says observe others. Careful observation, faithful imitation of those who actually are putting this into practice. Faithful imitation. Imitate others. Mimic others. And that sounds repelling to a culture drunk on uniqueness and individuality. I saw a quote this week that said this. I'm quoting Self-love tip of the day. When looking in the mirror today, take a moment and celebrate your uniqueness. There is no one like you. That's what you're supposed to say. You know what I said when I looked in the mirror this morning? Wow, I need to do something because I got to get to church. That's what I said. Did you know that Joel Osteen just launched an inspiration cube this past week? True story. I saw it on Fox News. For $39.99, you can get a little speaker box with a button that will quote Joel Osteen's inspiration to you anytime you want them. The website said, quote, It's filled with the ultimate collection of the most powerful daily inspirations ever assembled. Things like, get in a position for increase. Encourage yourself. Say goodbye to the familiar. Your time is coming. Outlast your oppositions. Can you imagine Stephen standing before the hospital crowd in Jerusalem with rocks in their hands and daggers in their eyes and the moment when he takes a, uh, inhales to take a deep breath and begin to preach Jesus Christ to them in that very moment when, when he has to to muster up something inside of him, knowing how this is probably going to turn out, saying to him, now, now, now wait a minute, I, I need to, to remember what Joel said to me this morning, my inspiration cube. Get in a position for increase, Stephen. Uh, encourage yourself. Your time is coming. Yeah, yeah, your time is coming, coming with rocks. It's nonsense. It's verbal flatulence. That's what it is. There is nothing original about the world or the people in it. They mimic each other to the greatest degree, and then they pretend all to be different. They're they're like the farm turkeys at at the butterball plant. When one gobbles, all of them do. Just look at their clothing and their fashions and their fads and the TikTok challenges and all of the other things. It's all groupthink. One says it, and somebody else repeats it, and then they repeat it over and over and over. Listen, you, you find examples of people who are not buying into the prevailing wind of worldliness around them, and then you observe them, and then you do what they do. That's what Paul says. But if you hope to utilize this help from God, you have to be up close and personal with other believers in order to watch them. Those Christians don't grow in isolation. It's the purpose of the church. The church is necessary. It's mandatory for your, your spiritual life. And you have to open up your your life to others if if you hope to serve as a a model. And you have to draw close enough to others to observe them in real life if you want to glean from their their pursuit. And that means more than just seeing them before and after church on Sunday mornings. 
If you do it, it'll benefit both of you. I can remember a meeting with an older man in the, in the church that I was, I was saved in because I wanted this, and we met for breakfast every week. And, and I can remember being a young Christian and reading Proverbs chapter 3, which, which says, Honor the Lord with your, with your first fruits of all of your, your increase. And he was a CPA, so I can remember asking him, I was wrestling, to, should I tithe on, on my net paycheck or on my gross? And then what about my, what about my retirement? And we looked at the passage together and concluded the principle was I should give to God first. Then the government and then everything else. And retirement was part of my, my increase, and so, so that was concluded. I was happy. I was happy. I was very helped that morning. A couple of years later... He confessed to me he was helped as well. A couple years later, he confessed that up to that moment, he hadn't even been tithing. And God convicted him through my honest questions about desiring to please the Lord. Don't the people that, that are running behind you, you're out in front, the people running behind you, don't they propel you along? You know somebody's back there. And aren't you encouraged by, by, by the people that are in front of you? They're pulling you along in your wake. It will help both of you if you, you get in these types of of relationships. You have no idea how the Lord will use you. It's not the perfection of your life, it's the pursuit. Some of the greatest lessons that, that I've learned, I've learned by watching others fail or failing myself, but then rising again. God's not finished with you if you've, if you've failed. That's not Joel Osteen stuff, that's Bible stuff, forgetting those things which are behind. But if you give up and you give in, then there's nothing for the Lord to use. And evidently some had done that, that very thing. This is the second one here. Second help. God describes a mutiny to, to avoid. Look at verse 18 and 19. Paul mourns over enemies and then he marks their, their habits. Verse 18. For many walk, he says, who I've often told you, and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. Paul, Paul now turns from models to follow to ones who avoid. Just like they're good examples, they're, they're also bad ones. And he says, so keep your eyes on those who live according uh, as we do in verse 7, and, and so you won't become like those in verses 18 and 19. And Paul says he's already warned the Philippians about whoever he's talking about here. And he says he weeps over them, and then he describes what they look like. Now, we're not told specifically who Paul is talking about here. But he says these people also have a walk. Their walk's unmistakable. It's the same word that he uses in verse 17. Uh, observe those who walk according to the pattern of this world. And then there's the contrast in verse 18. For many walk, whom I've often told you. How do they walk? They walk as enemies of the cross. It's a biblical walk, it's a biblical term for daily conduct. Uh, the Hebrew for walk is frequently used to depict somebody's personal relationship with God. Enoch walked with God. Adam walked with God in the, in the cool of the day. It, it's the pattern of, of someone's life. And then he specifically describes that pattern in verse 19. But right here he places a fork in the road, this contrast. Observe those who walk this way. So you won't be the, those who walk this way. He says there's two ways to live. This is where the title comes from. There's a Christ-centered life and a self-centered life. And he describes a self-indulgent life governed by passions and sins. 
And he says, that's the life that you must avoid. What do you think of whenever you, you hear the term an enemy of Christ? What kind of person do you think of whenever you hear? That person's an enemy of Christ. Is that maybe an evil person burning churches down in the middle of the night? Maybe the Communist Party official uh, destroying Bibles? The ACLU uh, suing to stop a Christian club in a public school? They're enemies of the cross. Paul says enemies of the cross are people led around by their passions. Somebody who set themselves in opposition to Philippians 2, 6-11. It's the opposite of a humble, obedient, submitted life to, to the Father. Their desires direct them rather than God. That, that places them in opposition to the cross, which is self, self-denying. They're self-deifying. They serve these base impulses with their time and their their talents and their treasure, and and that makes them an enemy of the cross. Walter Hansen said when when Paul describes these people here, it's not a theological denial of the cross that he details, but an ethical divergence from the way of the cross. And if you're walking in pursuit of self-interest and and not in the, the way of the cross, you're living as an enemy. Super strong language here. And if that's you, Paul, you have the Apostle Paul in tears, literally. Look if you would at verse 18. He says, For many walk whom I've often told you, now even tell you weeping. The, the term weeping or mourning there is in the present tense. He's still moved over their plight. Uh, even reminding the Philippians now moves him to tears. As he's writing, he's literally crying. Who's he crying over? Well, it's not the Judaizers and the false teachers that he just described before, because he calls them dogs. I don't know that you call somebody a dog like that and and strip them down the way that, that the Apostle Paul does. He's not talking about them. He's weeping over people that the Philippians knew and the Apostle Paul knew and would come to their mind. He doesn't even have to identify them. They were they were known. He's weeping over those who may have professed faith in Christ at one time, but they've allowed worldliness and sensuality to to derail them. Maybe people that were there while the Apostle Paul was in in Philippi and they listened to the claims of Christ and and maybe even turned in that direction and maybe even took a a few steps in that direction, but they, they turned away from the world and looked to Christ and now they've turned back to the world. Gordon Fee said they they have abandoned Christ by adopting a lifestyle that is totally opposed to the redemptive work of the cross. Some might call them backsliders, but but now you you, you can't even know whether they were saved to begin with. At one time they heard the gospel and and gave it some attention, and and now they've come full circle and they've turned back to the world. Maybe they were like the one raised, like a child raised in church. And when they got old enough to be on their own, their real heart came out. And now they have no interest in Christ, but they're, they're all about them, themselves. Parents, your responsibility is to communicate Christ to them and, and live that before them, and you'll do that imperfectly. What they should be able to see is not hypocrisy, but an honest pursuit. But, but you're not accountable or responsible for your child's individual salvation. They'll come to a point where they'll make that decision themselves. Read Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 
God describes himself as a father, and if there was any, any father that was perfect, it was God, and he says he has rebellious children. For these people, Paul has pastoral concern and intense pain. Walter Hansen said, his words are harsh, but his heart is broken. There are two responses that, that we should have toward those who were once, once among us and, and are not following Christ any longer. One is pity, and the other is, is protective, a protection, a hedge against them. You should be heartbroken over their condition. You should pity them because the Bible says the way of a transgressor is hard and hell is real and they're heading straight into the teeth of pain. They've returned like a dog to vomit, the Bible says. If you're struggling struggling in every direction that, that you turn and that's difficult, you should check to see if you've placed yourself in opposition to God in some way. It could just be the fall. But it also could be God calling you trying to get your attention. And I would guess you know in your heart whether you've set yourself in opposition toward the Lord with the way you're living, whether someone knows about it or not, or whether it's just the fault. You should confront professing Christians who are in error with a sharp edge of truth but with a sensitive heart for them. You don't fail to confront them or question what you see, but... But know that, that when you do, you love them. They should know that you love them dearly. You take no glory or gloating in pointing out their error. It feels more like a rescue operation to them than a beatdown. The latter is reserved for false teachers. You know, Jesus, if you just look at the New Testament as a whole, he dealt with people in two distinct ways. The proud and the hypocrites and the people that were trusting in themselves, uh, he kicked them in the teeth, he gave them no quarter. Look at the way he talked to the Pharisees. But he showed mercy and compassion to the repentant. Um, Those who knew that they needed a Savior, he touched them, spoke to them. And he did so with a caring voice. But people who are misled and mislead others, and if they continue on that path, they're a danger. They must be protected against. They're not to be toyed with. You must guard the church from them. If they persist in their error, they must be identified and removed from the body. And Paul marks these enemies of the cross with four characteristics. This is not a new time. Paul's not dealing with them for the first time here. He's talked about them many times. He's pleaded with them. He still weeps over them. But he says, now I'm identifying them. And he also shows you whether you're one. Look at verse 19 again. He gives four characteristics. Those whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. They they face destruction, their flesh is their God, they flaunt what they should be ashamed of, and their focus is fixed on earthly things. MacArthur said, having rejected the one and only uh, truth of salvation, the cross of Christ, they, they they all face the same fate. He starts with their end. I mean, he front loads this with where they're going to end up. Their end is torment or or punishment. It's the same word that Paul used for perfection before. Uh, Where they're going to end up, where Paul's going to end up is, he's going to be made like Christ. He's going to be perfected in Christ. Where they're going to end up is, is torment or punishment. That's the end of the road, destruction. It's the inevitable consequence of choosing a self indulgent life, setting your life against Christ. 
And he says that life is then expressed in appetite, it's expressed in their pride, and it's expressed in their mind. It's the last three. He says, says their, their, their end is destruction, and their God is their appetite. Some of your translations will say, will say Bible, or I mean, will say stomach. It's usually in a figurative word, the appetite or stomach. Paul is saying just like the stomach has hunger pains, these men serve the, the pangs of their sensual and fleshly desires. That's their God. That, that's who they serve. There were people in Paul's day, just like in ours, that were saying, if it's a natural desire, it can't be wrong. I mean, just like I get hungry and I want to eat, I have other desires. And just because I have, I have those, that, that must be from God as well. Paul deals with this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Here's what they were saying. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And meaning these desires I have, therefore they can't be sinful. God, God gave me these desires. And here he's talking about, they were talking about sexual desires. They're saying it's purely biological. It's just natural to me, therefore it can't be bad. Look at Paul's response. He doesn't say the desires aren't there. He says the desires are there, but the, but the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And, and the Lord is for the body. It's the same argument that you, you, you hear today. I was born with certain desires, therefore God must have made me this way. It's okay. Same-sex attraction is an example in our day as an attempt to try and justify an ordinate sin. You may have real desires, but, but Paul says desires don't justify anything. They may be intense. They may be hard. You may struggle against them, but that's the point. Having them and the fact that they don't go away doesn't make make them from God or right. And probably more more than likely, if you're using that as an excuse, you're you're probably doing things to cultivate those desires rather than kill them like the Bible says. I have a real desire to run somebody off the road whenever they cut me off, but that doesn't make it right, does it? I have a desire to have what I want when I want it, sometimes on a daily basis. But it doesn't mean it's pleasing to God. You see how that works? Your body, its desires, its functions, they're fallen, but they belong to the Lord. And so you have to submit them to the Lord, and you're not able to do that unless you come to Christ and His Spirit resides within you. Whatever your desires, they must be surrendered to Him and governed by His ways because He's the one who made you. That's what Paul's saying here. You're here for Him. I mean, to put it plainly, Paul says you have a higher authority than your bodily appetites. And they should not dictate the way you live. God should. And you're living as an enemy of the cross if you follow your appetites, and those appetites are contrary to Christ. And those serving these appetites that, that, that leads actually to shameful behavior. Look at what else he says in verse 19. He says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame. Next thing he says, whose glory is their shame. I mean, you can really see the, the downward spiral of a man or a woman who gives themselves to sin here. They begin by entertaining the desires instead of fighting them. Then they follow those desires without restraint. And after a while, they're overtaken by their appetites. And that leads to to even lacking shame about things that that they know are wrong. You ever heard the phrase, you are what you eat? 
I, I joked in the early service, if that's true, then our family is a, is a pound of bacon because we, we eat it all the time. Well, the Bible says you will become what you worship, what you think about, what you feed on, what you adore will start to come out in the way you look and the way you act and the way you, you behave. Don't just think watching filth, it, it's contained only in the mind. Sin is not compartmentalized. It seeps into every nook and cranny in your, of, of your person. And eventually what, what, what is in you will, will come out. And if you return to it long enough, it'll start to change you. Eventually it, it's going to show up in, in your life. It's going to mark you. And after a while, you'll become like the idol you serve. Look at Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the works of man's hands. They, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They, they cannot make a sound with their throat. Now watch this. Those who make them will become like them. Not only them, everyone who trusts in them will become like them. It's the implication. You ever notice the outward changes that happen to a person whenever they, whenever they pursue sin? The person who gives themselves to drinking or drugs begins to look haggard. The person overtaken in, in sexual sin begins to be marked by the, by the filth that they engage in. The homosexual starts looking effeminate or masculine. And have you ever noticed the opposite? Those who come to Christ, after a while, the haggard look begins to fade. And they begin to gain a peaceful and joyful appearance. There's just something that radiates about them. Don't underestimate this. The sanctifying effects of God or the devastating effects of sin. Because when you, you stay in a sinful state for a long time, you can even, even lose proper shame. That's the stage that Paul describes here. Paul says what they, they once were ashamed of, they now accept and even glory in. As the conscience is defiled, they lose sensitivity. What at one point they would have said, ah, that's wrong. You think it's wrong and now they even glory in starts with resisting that voice in your heart that tells you something's not right, and then it moves to rejecting it altogether, and it ends with rejoicing in the sin you once knew was wrong. Listen, not feeling bad about your sin is not something to celebrate. It's an evidence that God's turned you over to a reprobate mind. It's broken. You're getting beyond hope. If God does not intervene in some radical way, you will perish. You must repent. That's the passion that Paul has and the passion that you should have. These people Paul is weeping over celebrate, thinking that they're free from shame. But in reality, they've rendered themselves without any hope. And so without any thoughts of heaven or hope there, they live in the only sphere they have left, which is the earth. Look at what he says here. Finally, Paul says they set their mind on earthly things. Their glory, they glory in their shame and who set their mind on earthly things. The reason why people are enslaved by their sexual appetites and boast about their shameful acts is their mind. 
is now set on earthly things. I mean, he moves here from, I mean, he starts with where they're going to end up. He moves here from their, their appetites, their desires, and then he, he gets to where they, their conscience is deadened, and now their minds are engaged. They, they only think about earthly things. They don't even think about eternity. Isn't that the goal of Satan? To get you to think about tomorrow? Don't think about tomorrow, think about today. The reason why people are enslaved is is this favorite phrase that Paul uses elsewhere. They set their mind on on something. He's used it twice already in in 2.2 and 2.5. Be like-minded, be of one mind, have the same attitude of Christ. People who have an obsession with earthly things and personal gratification are those who have set their mind on on the earth. They don't think about the things of God. They don't think about eternal things. They're only focused on on the here and now. That's in contrast to pursuing the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So which will you serve? The God of your passions? Christ's surpassing worth? That's the question that you have to answer. That's the fork in the road. Listen, God makes sense out of life here. I mean, if there is no eternity, there's no sense to to this reality that we're living in. But living for Him brings purpose, and a better day is coming, and that should motivate you. He gives us, finally, a motivation to anticipate. And that's some fruit that comes. Look at verse 20. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven for which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We eagerly wait. Paul follows this whole thing up with a final compelling reason to follow the command of of verse 17, to to mimic him and to to watch others and and follow their pattern. Two reasons to do that. You don't want to be, be like the ones who walk as an enemy of the cross. You want to be one whose citizenship is in heaven. And the term Paul uses for, for citizenship here, the Philippians would be very familiar with. We talked about this in the beginning, so I, I won't go back there. But, but Philippi was a, was, a, was a town that had a special dispensation from Rome. It was like they were, they, were, they were little citizens of the capital. It was a very significant thing to be, to be part of, of Philippi. And Paul uses that parallel. And he says, believers live in this world but they're like citizens of heaven. You live in Philippi, but it's like you're a citizen of the Roman capital. Believers are joined to Christ's kingdom, not this world. But because we don't live in heaven yet, we live with a longing appearance for, for our Savior who's going to take us there. Have you ever noticed that whenever you read the apostles and the disciples, um, there is this fervent hope I mean, they're, 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 I mean, sometimes they, they almost get a bad rap. There's like, well, they've been, I mean, everywhere you read, the Lord's going to come in my day. The Lord's going to come in my day. I mean, that's what Paul was saying. That's what Peter was saying. The Lord never came. It, it, it's not because, you know, they knew that God was going to come while they were alive. It was this idea that, that Paul's using here. There's the eager desire. I want Jesus to return because I want to be with him. That's the motivation to live. The same disciples that watched Jesus ascend into heaven lived daily with a desire for Him to return. And that moved them to live for Him. The moral choices that you make 
in life now are, are illuminated by eternity. Richard Hayes says, The future shines a bright light on the present to guide your moral choices. What you do now will show up in eternity. And the reason that we pursue Christ-likeness by walking after the pattern that God gives and not as enemies of the cross is because we will meet the Lord one day very soon. He's going to prepare a place for us and He's coming again to receive us and then we'll forever be with the Lord. And so someone who knows that, that heaven is their real home has little interest in the trinkets and trifles of the earth. And they long for the King to come. You know, um, every year when I go on vacation, I read, a, I read a biography. And this year, I read David Livingston, the missionary to Africa. He was this kind of man. I mean, he understood what Apostle Paul was saying here. He, he, he wrote in a journal on a regular basis, and he would send copies of that journal back to, to England because he would take notes in there, botany and about animals and maps, and they really wanted those. But, but I think what's even of greater value is... It's his pursuit of Christ. In one of those journals, he said, I'd rather be in the heart of Africa in the will of God than on the throne of England out of the will of God. He said, I I will place no value on anything I have or may possess except in relation to the kingdom of Christ. If anything will advance the interests of that kingdom, it shall be given away or kept only in reference to whether giving or keeping will most promote the glory of Him to whom I owe all my hopes, in time and eternity. He said another time in prayer, God send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. And sever any tie in my heart except the tie that binds my heart to yours. And his way wasn't easy. I mean, one of his journals recognizing that he's going to have little fruit from his life. He sees beyond his life. He's going to be, realizes that he's going to be a planter, not a waterer. He said, Oh, I see fewer results. Future missionaries will see conversions following every sermon. And may they not forget the pioneers who worked in the thick gloom with few rays to cheer, except such as flow from faith in the precious promises of, of God's word. Now, those are the words of a man whose hope was in heaven. And that fixed hope on heaven influenced the way that he viewed life. I mean, you realize someone went into inland China for the first time, and we have people in our church that are fruit from their ministry. Somebody went into India for the first time. We have people in our church that they're actually fruit, generational fruit from their ministry. And Livingston and others went into Africa for the first time. And we prayed over two missionaries that are returning there, bearing fruit, as Livingston tilled some of the ground. Those who eagerly eagerly wait on on the Lord will find reward beyond their wildest imagination whenever He comes. Look, if you would, at verse 21. We eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. How will He do it? By the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. That's a mouthful. There's a lot of messianic stuff going on there. What awaits us? 
resurrected body? Yep. The glory of his power? Yes. But Paul is very specific here. We do not eagerly await an event. We eagerly await a person who's going to bring about all those things. And when Jesus returns for his church, our struggle will end and we will have our prize. And our prize is him. (laughs) We'll be made perfect. And in that perfection, He will transform our earthly body into a glorious one, and sin and struggle will be no more. And in those transformed states, we will be able to be in perfect fellowship with Him and worship Him perfectly. You and I have never worshipped Jesus Christ perfectly. It's always imperfectly because of the fall. But one day, with all of our heart, without any taint of sin, we will sing to the King. Won't that be a day? Before we get there, there's two ways to live. A self-centered way, led by your appetites and desires and walking as an enemy of the cross or Christ's way. Are you in pursuit of the prize? Are you single-focused in life? Are you following mentors like, like Paul and, and models of, of others who, who walk the same way? Are, are you mourning over bad examples? And avoiding being that yourself? Or are you moved to do it all the more to see Christ and live with Him? I think you are. I do. I think you are, brothers and sisters. Preparing this message about Timberlake Baptist Church, we do these things. But I'm also not naive enough to believe that in Timberlake Baptist Church, or even in those of you who have come today, Maybe visiting. I don't know. You might have fallen out of the race. You might be somewhere in that process where you're battling against those desires and you're giving in to them. Maybe you've already given in to all of them. My hope that you're not to the place where you're glorying in what you should be ashamed of. The closer you get there, the, the farther you get away from hope. Maybe the Lord's brought you here today to hear. Because the end is either Jesus as Savior and worshipful Lord or as judge and then destruction. Let's pray. Father, an encouraging message and a challenging one. You tell us that we do not have to be completely put together to, to make an impact in your kingdom. It's just the pursuit. Drawing others along and having someone in front of us that we follow. But there's also a strong warning not to set our lives against humility and obedience and the way of the cross. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us to be the first and keep us from being the, the latter. Give us, fan the flames of that eager hope as we wait to see the Lord Jesus Christ and His return and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.